Have you ever thought about the things that make us human? You may have thought of our intelligence, our culture, or our empathy. But some argue that language is really the center of our humanity. You might be convinced that some animals communicate in a way that resembles human language. After all, chimps make meaningful facial expressions, and even rodents can vocalize to communicate. But there is one type of language humans have created that most definitely sets us apart, and that is computer programming. In the same way that we can string words together to represent an idea, computer code allows us to use smaller building blocks to compute a function or complete a task. Scientists have already carved out the language networks in our brain. Certain areas are dedicated solely to understanding and creating language, but we're still not sure where computer programming fits into the picture. Do we read code the same way we read a book? How do our brains gather meaning from the tokens we use to write code? With our episode today, we get one step closer to answering these questions. I'm Shen Ning, and I'm Mehdi Jurfi, and you are listening to a new episode of Science Rehashed. 最前沿的科学研究 ，science，innovation，science，technology，technology，discovery，rehashing，science。If you're enjoying the show and want to help us keep making content, please consider becoming one of our patrons on Patreon. Find us at patreon.com/join/sciencerehashed to become a patron for just three dollars a month, or you can become a VIP patron for just five dollars a month. Our first ten VIP patrons will receive a free Science Rehashed water bottle. That's patreon.com/join/sciencerehashed to join. And we're back with another rehashing science episode, and I'm really excited about our guest. We interviewed Anna Ivanova, a fantastic scientist at MIT. Anna works with Dr. Ev Fedorenko at MIT's Department of Brain and Cognitive Sciences, where they study the neural and cognitive basis of language. I can't wait to hear about this interview, and listeners. You will be hearing some new voices on the podcast today because we have Lauren. Hi everyone, and Tavi. Hey, here with us today. Lauren is one of our fantastic writers, and Tavi is one of our sound editors. And they were able to sit in on the interview with Anna. Yeah, it's it's really great. I'm really excited. And、uh, for our listeners, if you want to follow along and read the article that we're talking about, you can find the link on our website, sciencerehash.com, in the episode section. And before diving deep into the conversation and this interview, don't forget to visit us on Twitter to rehash the episode with us. Join the conversation with us at Science Rehashed. That's Science R E H A S H E D. Using the hashtag S R Episode. That's S R E P I S O D E. See you there. 
computer programming is this new skill that has become extremely popular in the last couple of decades. And it's important to study it by itself because, of course, now that it's going to be so important for so many people to learn how to program, to help them in their job careers, uh, etc. We really want to understand how their brains are able to learn and process computer code. So, Mehdi, you weren't actually in this interview, so we should probably catch you up to speed a little bit. Um, so Anna's research focuses on how our brains process language and figuring out which specific networks are involved when we're reading or understanding naturally spoken languages. But this paper was about computer programming languages and whether or not those function in the same way as natural languages. Yeah, absolutely. And it was really interesting to even think about the difference between natural language and computer science, because for me, I would think, you know, they're quite similar, which means I would imagine you'd use the same brain regions, but it's really fascinating what she finds in her study. It's really interesting what she finds, because from my own experience, I would actually expect computer code and language to be a little bit different. I thought about how I learned to code was more about following a set of rules and understanding how to I don't know, write things and interact with the computer. So I thought of it less as learning a language because you don't really speaking it. Yeah, I guess that's true because like with languages, you typically pick it up as you listen to it in your daily life. Whereas with computer programming, you really have to learn the rules as if you're learning a foreign language. That's another interesting topic is learning a foreign language the same as computer, you know, learning how to computer program. But it also brings up the question of, is learning coding more similar to maybe learning a new skill in math? Is it more similar to learning maybe calculus or geometry, learning those rules and symbols and all the things that go into kind of building this more abstract thought out of, out of the building blocks? Well, that's fascinating. I can't wait to hear more about this work. Now let's meet Anna. My name is Anna Ivanova. I am a graduate student at MIT and the Department of Brain and Cognitive Sciences, working with F. Federenko. My first interest in science got started when I was back home in middle school or high school, and it was actually biology. So we did a, a lot of field trips where we got exposed to biology as a science, but also to the way scientific research works, the way scientific experimentation works. And then I came to the United States. I actually did two years of high school in the U.S. and then went to undergraduate um, at the University of Miami in Florida. And um, yeah, it was in undergrad where I got interested in neuroscience and cognitive neuroscience specifically. So even though I really like natural sciences, biology in particular, I was also into 
other subjects more on the humanities side, like literature and writing and foreign languages. And sometime early in college, I realized that I can actually combine my interest in biology with my interest in language. And so the main thing that I study right now is how we process language in the brain and how it relates to other cognitive functions. Can you tell us then, uh, go a little bit more in detail about your research, combining, um, you know, neuroscience, essential cognitive science with um, with your literature interest, what what is the current kind of, what is this paper's um, motivation? What was the origin of the story for the work that you've been doing? To provide a little bit of background, at the beginning of her career, my advisor, F. Fedorenko, characterized this network of regions in the human brain called the language network. And We've known that there are parts of human brain that are somewhat specialized for language processing for a long time. If you took any kind of introductory neuroscience course or even psychology, sometimes you might have heard about Broca's area and Wernicke's area. But of course, uh, the real picture is much more complicated than what you see in a textbook. We now know that there is an entire network of regions, not just two chunks of uh, the brain that are responsible for language processing. And so what we do in our lab is we use functional MRI to measure activity in this network of brain regions to see whether indeed they're specialized for language or whether they do do some other things as well. What is so special about these regions? And so when I joined the lab, um, Ev has done a bunch of work that showed essentially that the language regions are very selective, that they respond to language in all of its forms, whether you are listening to me talking or reading a text or speaking or writing, you will activate the language network. But if you are solving math problems or listening to music, the language regions will not be active. So they seem to be selective for language in some way. But in, in addition to that, uh, we've also known about the existence of a different brain network called a multiple demand brain network. And the multiple demand network seems to be responding to pretty much any task that's cognitively challenging. Things that make you think hard, the multiple demand network would come online. So if you are reading a math problem, then you would activate, say, the language regions to understand what the problem is about, if it's in language, and then you would activate the multiple demand network to actually solve the problem, right? And so right now we're kind of at the point where we're really trying to probe the, the selectivity even harder to push it to its limit, right? Are they really so different in their functional profiles? Is the language network really selective for only language? And so that's how we came to study computer programming. What was known before about um, programming in terms of the neural code and what's been, what is recruited and how it relates to language? We really knew very little about how computer programming is processed in the brain and the mind. So early works in the 70s and 80s started asking this question, what kind of cognitive capacities do we use when we process computer code? Is it, is it similar to processing math and logic? Is it similar to processing natural language? Is it something else entirely? But 
recently there hasn't been that much work that really asks about the cognitive architecture of computer programming. There have been some, but not very much. And so the advances in neuroimaging in the last two decades really allow us to ask this question using modern neuroscience tools, because we can now look inside the brain and see are the brain regions responsible for language processing versus the brain regions responsible for, say, math and logic processing active when people read computer code. There have been a handful of papers in the last five, seven years that started to look at the neuroscience of programming. Um, so we're not the first ones to use functional MRI to look inside the programmer's brains. But what makes our work new and so far unique is that we really try to characterize uh, computer programming in terms of the kind of brain networks they recruit, right? So the first thing we do is we define already established and characterized networks, the language network and the multiple demand network. And then we ask whether these networks, which we know a lot about, are active when people are reading computer code. Anna, can you tell us about how you went about investigating this very specific question that you had in mind? The question we had was, how does our brain process computer code when you read simple programs? And we did two different experiments trying to investigate this with two different programming languages. The first programming language we use was Python. It's a very popular programming language. And one feature that makes it interesting is that it's considered to be very language-like. It has a simple syntax. It uses a lot of English-like words and identifiers. So in some ways, it's like language. It's meant to be easy to read because it's a little bit like natural language. And then the second programming language we studied was very different. It's called Scratch Junior. It's a graphical programming language. It has no text, only uh, blocks of graphical visual instructions. And Scratch Junior is a programming language developed for young kids. Essentially, it allows you to put together a sequence of action for cartoon characters, and then that will allow you to make a cartoon or a game with those characters. And so by comparing how the brain processes Python and Scratch Jr., we wanted to try and see what is the general response, what kind of responses are shared across these two very different programming languages. Question about um, kind of going through the um, experimentees, kind of um, the, um, if you have like a guest who's, who's participating in an experiment, can you walk us through what their experience would be like? We recruited people who knew the programming language that we were investigating, so Python and Scratch Junior, respectively. Most of them were young adults with a few years of experience coding in that language. And we invited them to our functional MRI facility, and they come in, lie in the MRI scanner, which is this giant magnet tube, um, and they see a screen where we project various kinds of stimuli and we give them a button box so they can press a button to respond to a task. And so in the critical programming experiment, people saw snippets of computer code 
and they were asked to predict the output of that code. So for Python, the program would print something in the end, a number or a string of letters. And so people needed to predict what the program was going to print out. And then once they knew what the response, what the response was going to be, they would press a button and then we would show them the four options and they could choose which option matched their prediction. And for Scratch Junior, they saw a sequence of blocks describing actions that a cartoon character or multiple characters would take. And then they would watch a video and they were asked to say whether the video matched the sequence of instructions or not. So that was the critical task. In order to see which activity was specific to code comprehension versus just, you know, you trying to solve a complicated problem, we contrasted response to these code problems to the response to content matched sentence problems. So in half of the conditions, people saw not code, but a text problem that described the similar kinds of operations so that the kind of simulation, mental simulation people would have to do in order to arrive at the correct answer would be the same, but they would be receiving information through language and not through code. So this design aspect really allowed us to narrow in on the processes that are specific to code comprehension. When computer programmers lied in the scanner and were reading those simple problems in Python versus Scratch Junior, we saw activity in response to code in their multiple demand networks in the brain. So the multiple demand network that's responsive to cognitively challenging tasks was also responsive to computer code. What was interesting about the pattern we observed is that it wasn't localized to any particular part. So it wasn't like one particular chunk of the multiple demand network was specialized for computer code processing or even that one hemisphere was more strongly responsive than the other. The entire multiple demand network essentially seemed to be carrying this cognitive burden of processing computer code. And that makes computer code processing different from say math and logic, which also load onto this multiple demand network, but more strongly on the left hemisphere. So this was an interesting difference we saw between computer programming and math and logic processing. And then, in the language network, we saw a little bit of activity in response to Python code, but essentially no activity in response to Scratch Junior. So we conclude that whatever activation we might have seen there is specific to the programming language or maybe the task they were doing. And so we don't think that the language network plays a meaningful role in computer code comprehension. You were using Python and Scratch Junior, and I think Scratch Junior makes a lot of sense because it's graphical, and um, you can kind of see the difference between a normal coding language. But then, um, why Python instead of something like maybe C or like I don't know JavaScript or any other coding language? Do you think that results might differ just depending on what language is being used? The reason we used Python was twofold. One was because it's a very popular programming language, so it has a lot of relevance. And on the practical side, it was easy for us to find participants. Many people in the MIT area know Python. And the other consideration was if Scratch Junior, in some ways, is a programming language that's really unlike natural language, 
Python is a programming language that's very much like a natural language. So it was a really hard test case for us, right? We, we wanted to see whether the language network would respond to a programming language that's very much like a natural language. And we did see some response, and it's definitely possible that this response would go down in something like C or text-based languages that are just you know less language-like in the way they are structured. All right. Hey, listeners, don't forget to tell us about what you think of Science Rehashed by leaving us a review on Apple Podcast. I'll be reading a new review every episode. So head over to Apple Podcast now to tell us your thoughts. So today's comment is from user Science Rehash fan who says, quote, as a non-sciencey person, I love learning something new in the science arena that I wouldn't otherwise have access to or know to research. I love that they work to make science accessible to everyone, and I can't wait for more people to discover this gem of a podcast. Wow, thank you so much, Science Rehash fan. I also love your username. So listeners, if you want to be featured next, don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcast. Did you see any differences between individuals? Um, Because I'm curious, because I've always felt like I'm terrible at coding, where other people have this natural talent at it. And I wasn't sure it's because of early exposure, perhaps, or just a difference in the brain organization. Yeah, that's a really interesting question and a really fruitful direction for future work. So on one hand, there are like two questions there, right? One is, are there individual differences between people? And two, does your brain change as you're learning to code? And so in terms of individual differences, we didn't see any meaningful differences. For example, you you might think that more proficient individuals might rely more on the multiple demand network and beginners might use the language network to some extent. We didn't see that. But I have to say that our study wasn't designed to test individual differences. We only had Um, 20-something participants in each group. And so we would really need to have a larger sample to tease out those individual differences in more detail. And then, of course, the question of, you know, do you program better because your brain is more efficient or does your brain become more efficient as you you program more is uh, a chicken and egg question. And it's pretty hard to answer. So I would be hesitant to draw conclusions about your ability to code based on activity inside your brain. Now, it's possible that if you've programmed for decades, if you started really young, then your brain might develop this specialization with a region or a set of regions that are dedicated just to code. But in our sample, we didn't see that. Any region that responded to code also responded to the working memory task. Yeah, there's a cool study uh, that looked at people who were really into Pokemon as kids and found out functional specialization for Pokemon in their visual cortex. So it's very possible that if you start really young, when your brain is super plastic, you will develop specialization for code. But uh, at least, you know, it looks like you don't have to. It looks like you can be a successful programmer without having this super specialized region that 
processes computer code specifically. I'm noticing with the four of us here that we all span a bit of a range of different ages. So I'm wondering when was the first time you all learned any type of computer coding? That is a very good question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. For me, I actually got started with, I guess it was coding. When I was in high school, I was on the robotics team and we made these little um, vehicles out of Legos. And then we had this programming language that used just like symbols and icons to control how the how this Lego vehicle was moving. You could say, move forward 30 seconds. If you sense a wall, then stop and turn around, all different sorts of things. So I feel like having that in high school was a really good way to get into coding in actual languages that used words. Wow, your high school is really like high level. <laughs> 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 That's pretty awesome. That's awesome. I didn't even get um, into coding. Uh, I don't code, you know, right now I don't code very much at all either. Um, but it, I was really first introduced to it in college uh, at some point when I was doing experimental psychology work um, over the summer while I was abroad in the UK. And um, we had to basically program the tasks that the experimenting um participants had to do. And that was my first time really knowing anything about coding. And my postdoc at the time told me that, oh, this is a skill you're going to need for the rest of your life. And I totally agree with that. <laughs> yeah. Well, the first time I learned coding was um, like a few years ago, um, I, coming into high school. Uh, my high school has a lot of computer science classes. So um, I was first introduced to very basic things like HTML and JavaScript and CSS and stuff. And so from there, I've kind of taken some classes and spent more time um, online kind of just figuring out different things with like Python and a few different languages just because I think it's fun. And I hope that I can use it more in the future, but who knows? I, I, I see a huge generation gap between myself and you guys. <laughs> I got my first computer when I was 22. So I was a little bit late to the whole uh, game. And I think I started my first coding during my PhD in Switzerland when I, it, 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 I, I, I required to do something for one of the projects that I had to learn coding and start programming myself. But what I love to do uh, two or three years ago when I got into more RNA sequencing research and more advanced research and start learning Python, R, and I love coding these days. Yeah, I think, Mehdi, we all started coding perhaps after you started graying. <laughs> that, that might be pretty accurate. <laughs> And then we asked Anna about any gender differences that she might have found in the study, and she has some really insightful thoughts about the history of computing and how the stereotype that men are better at coding came to be. The history of women in computing 
is really striking. When computing was first becoming popular in the 60s, there have been a lot of women doing computer programming work. They were actually the main ones doing a lot of this day-to-day work with the machines. And then when computer programming became more uh, sexy and attractive and higher paying, men ended up taking over the vast majority of these jobs. And so the percentage of women in computing went down a lot toward the end of the 20th century. And right now we still have this perception that men are better at coding, more natural, and you know, that perception still holds despite the fact that women were once dominant in computing. The message we should be sending is that there aren't necessarily inherent biological differences that would make women worse at computer programming. We just don't have any evidence for that. And I think the finding that we saw that um, computer programming, computer program comprehension doesn't pattern cleanly with math and logic processing is also interested in that respect because we've traditionally grouped computer programming and stem together so closely that it has prevented many people from going into computer programming because they thought that, oh, I'm not good at STEM, so I can't code. I actually got an email after a paper came out from a computer programmer who said, I have been programming for many years. My software is being used widely by many, many people. But in fact, I'm terrible at math. I'm terrible at arithmetic. And thank you so much for showing that math and computer programming don't show on the same brain regions because I'm actually ashamed to admit it to my clients and to my colleagues because people would think that I'm a terrible programmer because I'm bad at math. And so I think there is a lot of value in trying to dismantle those stereotypes and really figure out what kind of skills and abilities go into computer programming because that would just potentially open up this career to so many more people. Right when the paper came out, I saw it all over social media and it went pretty viral. So I was just wondering, how has the public response been for you? What's been your experience with how viral it's gotten and with its publicity? Yeah, it was kind of crazy how many people were interested in the study. It got many thousand clicks and likes on Reddit. There was a TikTok about it. Uh, It went pretty viral. And people split quite a bit. Half of the people were saying, oh, yeah, of course, of course, the the language network would not respond to computer programming. Code and language are so different. And the other half of the people were saying that it was completely counterintuitive, that, that their intuition was very different. So people seemed really split in terms of what kind of result they would expect from this study. But yeah, a lot of computer programmers do seem to care about what their brains are doing when they work with computer code. So it's very exciting, and I really hope that there will be a lot more studies that on this topic because, as we've talked about, there are a lot of open questions still. Your paper pretty much focuses on reading and comprehending code. But um, how do you think some of this might differ if there was another study that focused on writing it or like creating a program instead? Yeah, that's a great question. So, so far, I know of one study that investigated writing computer code using functional MRI. And that's a pretty cool 
thing to do and a little bit challenging because the person is lying in the giant magnet tube and you need to bring in an, an MRI safe keyboard that you need to give them and ask them to type up something without seeing it while lying down. So it's challenging, but definitely possible to do. And um, so the study that has been done essentially showed that writing computer code is different from writing natural language text, which corresponds to our results. We show we see that computer coding and language are meaningfully different, but it's we still need to do that using this approach of functionally localizing networks of interest and then investigating their responses to typing up computer code. So then what kinds of follow-up studies do you expect might be coming next? On top of the questions that we've already covered about individual differences and in learning trajectories, one kind of evidence that people have asked us about, but we aren't aware of any studies that provide it, is causal evidence. And the main way to get causal evidence about the importance of a particular brain region in humans is from patient studies. So, for example, we've learned a lot about how the language network works by working with individuals who have aphasia and impairment in language production and comprehension or both. And of course, those kinds of studies have a lot of practical relevance in terms of strategies that we can use to help people with aphasia recover their language, but also in terms of basic science understanding of how specialized different bits of our brain are if you damage a particular bit, will you damage just language or will you damage other functions as well? And so one question that you can ask here and that will become relevant as you see more and more people who are programmers by trade is if your language skills are impaired, are you going to suffer in your ability to read and write computer code? Are they functionally linked? in the brain. And our evidence suggests that probably not, that probably they are functionally dissociable, but we don't know for sure. And causal evidence usually is much more powerful for answering those kinds of questions. Although we don't have evidence from patients with uh, brain lesions, we have anecdotal evidence from people on Reddit discussing our study and from, I think, one or two emails that we got that some programmers have dyslexia, so an impairment in reading, but that affects their ability to read natural language, but doesn't affect their ability to read computer code. So we know that some types of dyslexia uh, have to do not really with your ability to perceive letters, but with your ability to link them to language forms. And so from this anecdotal evidence, it looks like we see a dissociation between reading language and reading code. And so that would be another cool, interesting direction to follow up. You know, what is this kind of big picture, really big picture? What What is this really, um, what can it tell us about um, the human condition, maybe even going to evolution, um, you know, potentially? What does this mean? Uh, what does this mean for the evolution of those circuits? Yeah, that's a great question. So we know that the human brain is special in many different ways, but one ability that really 
puts us over the edge is our ability to learn new cognitive tools, our ability to use math and physics and science, our ability to draw and read maps are all examples of abilities that aren't hardwired in us evolutionarily, but are abilities that we're able to learn and use in order to function better in the world. And computer programming is one of the most recent such abilities, our ability to deliver a set of instruction to a machine to do the work for us really has done so much to change the world around us and has given us so much more power and abilities to change our environment in a way that works well for us. And so figuring out how is it that our brain can acquire and use those new cognitive tools seems to be a really important question for, for understanding why our brains work the way they are and also for figuring out how to make learning these new tools easier and more efficient. And so figuring out which of the existing brain networks can adapt and take on this new function seems to be really crucial for this question. That's awesome. I have one last question as well, um, just about you and your journey from biology to now um, brain and cognitive sciences. Do you have any advice for anyone who might be listening, who's just getting started and kind of carving their path the way you did? Yes, I think my main advice is learn to program. And I say this independent of the content of this particular study, but um, I took a few computer programming classes in college and got into it without actually knowing why I was just kind of generally interested in computers and feeling that they are important for, you know, our society going forward, I had no idea how, how much it would actually be useful, how much I program on a daily basis in my day-to-day -day science lab work. So computer programming just seems to be such an important skill for anyone going into research, many, many various research domains, um, but also even beyond, even just using simple formulas in Excel in a business environment is computer programming. So it's really permeating our lives in many different ways. So learn the code. Well, thank you so much, Anna, for joining us today at Science Rehashed and for giving us all something to think about the next time we're coding. Wow, I'm actually quite surprised by those findings. Not just that the brain circuit involved in reading computer code is different than the language network, but that it's even different from math and logic circuits. Yeah, I thought so too. And at the pace we're going, I wouldn't be surprised if we're in the process of evolving an even more specific neural network for coding. So I think I'm going to take Anna's advice and practice some programming now. I think that's a fantastic idea. Maybe you can update us next time on how that goes. I definitely will. It's definitely a challenge for me, so we'll see. <laughs> and thank you to our listeners for joining us on another episode of Science Rehashed. Remember, you can support Science Rehashed by becoming a patron on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash join slash science rehashed to join. 
Thank you for listening to another episode of Science Rehashed. This episode was written and produced by Lauren Granata, edited by Tavi Pollard, and mixed by Jared Worsoff. The cover art for this episode was created by our creative director, Emma Brand. We'll see you next time. <laughs>